HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Heritage Foods USA, the nation's largest distributor of heritage breed pigs and turkeys. For more information, visit heritagefoodsusa.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. This is Greenhorns Radio, radio for young farmers by young farmers. And today we're talking about radio, or actually we're talking about journalism in agriculture with Illy Carlisle Cummins of the Cal Ag Roots, which is a project of the California Institute for Rural Studies, which, as you can imagine, studies rural issues. Hello, Ildi. Hi, Severin. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me on. Totally. So um, let's get started by talking about what it is that you are working on um, with this project. Sure, yeah. Um, So I, as you mentioned, I direct the Cal Ag Roots Project, um, which is something that um, I felt like we had a need for in the young food movement, Um, And it's really a storytelling project that's designed to unearth the history of some important moments in the history, specifically of California farming, um, when it looks like things could have gone a different way. You know, a lot of uh, folks in the food movement are trying to move uh, move this big beast that is uh, the conventional agriculture and farming systems towards justice or towards sustainability. Um, But you know, I felt like doing food movement work, I didn't have a great sense of how the current system developed and why it developed and um, what were some of the important stories in the in the history of the development of the current farming system. So I thought it would be fun and interesting and important to dig around and see what um, which moments in the history of California farming really shaped the industry. 
And um, it's a project, like you mentioned, of a 40-year-old now. We just celebrated our 40th anniversary, um, a 40-year-old research institute that's a, an independent nonprofit uh, research institute that's studied all different sorts of um, rural issues, like you mentioned, in, across California. So um, that was a good home for the project, which began a, a couple years ago. So for those of our listeners who are uh, dedicated podcasters, and I know there are many of you, um, Ildi has mm-hmm. made some podcasts that you can listen yeah. to for free, and maybe she'll tell us what a couple of them are about. Sure, yeah. Yeah, that was one of the main um, tools that I was interested in using to do this storytelling project. We do do some live um, story performances and host some conversations and dialogues to get people talking about this history. But one of our main things we use is um, our podcast, and I'm a beginner, um, but have now put put together um, three podcasts, and I'm about to release either um, tonight, maybe, or maybe tomorrow, <laughs> our fourth podcast. And um, they, there's a range of different stories. You can find them all, um, if you're curious, on agroots.org. That's just agroots.org. Um, or you can subscribe on, on iTunes, too. Um, but they, there are our first three stories um, focused on um, different sort of key moments in California farming history. One, the first one was about um, the invention of the mechanical tomato harvester, in California, and that story is called There's Nothing More Californian Than Ketchup. And um, it, interestingly, the invention of the mechanical tomato harvester in the 1960s out of UC Davis really um, transformed the tomato industry, paved the way for the, the modern California processing tomato industry. Um, and what, you know, the, the invention of the machine itself was a, a huge breakthrough in terms of the agricultural technological production. It was the first time that a, a plant breeder and a mechanical engineer worked really, really closely together so that a plant, the tomato in this case, was bred to withstand and work with a, a mechanical machine so that you wouldn't end up with tomato juice at the end of a harvest um, when you ran this machine through the, through the field. So um, that was a sort of a, a moment of brilliance and, and revolution in terms of agricultural innovation. Um, but it also, the, as that machine was unleashed onto the California tomato industry, there were a lot of social repercussions that the scientists working on that project didn't necessarily foresee. Uh, so a whole bunch of small farmers were put out of business at that moment, um, 95% of them actually within the first five years of the tomato machine's release. And then a ton of farm workers were immediately put out of work. Um, and so that was that caused this huge... Uh, social backlash, and it was really a flashpoint, an organizing movement that, um, uh, an organizing moment that gave birth to some of the most important food movement organizations we've got in California, including um, my institute, but also the California, um, sorry, Community Alliance with Family Farmers, and um, some of the key food movement leaders were sort of born at that moment as well. So that's one example of the kind of story that we're we're digging into. I'm, I'm happy to talk about the others. Yeah, as well, well let's, let I'd love to go through all of them. Um, and I feel yeah. like I've just had a really nice conversation with a woman called Joe Gouldy, who um, mm. used to teach at Brown and mm-hmm. now teaches at SMU and wrote a book called The History Manifesto. And she mm. had a little just kind of throwaway line during our conversation. Um, her work is about kind of long, long durée 
history and mm-hmm. subaltern, you know, kind of histories of moments that either did or didn't crystallize in one particular direction yeah. or the other. And she says um, the whole notion of using history to justify the decisions that were made that give us this current present mm-hmm. um, is a matter of ideology. So mm-hmm. there's um, there's all sorts of moments when 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 um, a trigger moment came along and mm-hmm. our dest our you know was it destiny or was it the more powerful we don't know and and that kind right. of reexamining those moments and the the structure of those moments isn't yeah. just um, isn't just nostalgic but it's actually critical for understanding thinking historically about making the future. Yeah, yeah, I really. I really believe that. Sounds like um, I should talk to Joe Goldie. <laughs> I could learn a lot from her, but that is really the philosophy of this project. You know, it's um, it is a historical project, but I don't see it as backward facing. It's forward facing. It's about action forward, and it's about rooting current work in the in an understanding of history, so that we can move faster and be more effective and recognize opportunities. That's really um, what the project is is for and about. And I do think that, um, you know, one of the, one of the ways that I framed the project, because, you know, trying to get your arms around the history of California farming is, um, really, really difficult. Right. So I, I, I needed a framework to make this understandable. And I, um, kind of through lots of conversations with lots of smart folks, um, hit upon this idea of focusing on what I call the jig is up moment. Um, and so there are moments in the in the history of California farming when things really looked like they could have gone one way. Of course, of course, the jig is never up for California farming as usual. Sort of the big ag version of California farming keeps on the jig keeps on being danced um, through throughout this history. But there are moments when it looked like it really we could have gone a, a drastically different way. And um, I think focusing our attention on uh, those moments as opportunities or either missed opportunities or opportunities that people really did pile on and take advantage of in the moment and then were, um, you know, either sort of worked around or subverted in some way um, and sort of learning the lessons of what happened there is really critical to current food movement work. So learning why those deflections did not work or in kind of di- in a yeah. kind of diagnostic way. So let's talk a yeah. little bit just in terms before we move on to the other two episodes, if we could delve mm-hmm. into some of the questions that your history project like the mm-hmm. research that you did on this machine, yeah. which is also memorialized in a book called Hard Tomatoes by mm-hmm. um, Jim Hightower. Yep. Can you talk about some of the unusual findings or conclusions that you came to and if it triggered anything mm-hmm. um, in your analysis of some of the co- technological conversations we're having today about mm-hmm. robotics in agriculture, um, yeah. about CRISPR, um, about right. incredibly, incredibly quickly consolidating behemoths um, in technology mm-hmm. and seeds and chemistry, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, did anything kind of flash into your yeah. screen as you were... Um, hitting up yeah. those hard tomatoes? Yeah, well, um, a couple of things, I guess, and, and one of them I sort of started to, to talk about there, but the the fact that this moment um, with the invention of this mechanized tomato harvester could birth both 
the sort of, um, you know, process, the modern processed tomato industry that is pretty highly mechanized and that um, is dependent on this, you're right, Jim Hightower hit the nail on the head, this harder tomato, right, that was that was bred for its characteristics to work through the machine rather than characteristics that a plant breeder might have been looking for before that, like flavor um, or nutritional value. So this was the moment when... Um, you know that re- that really changed the they were bre- breeding, breeding. They were literally breeding for the machine. Yes, exactly, exactly. So, and would you th- talk a little bit about the the money in this? Like, where did the money come from to do that? Did it come from growers? Yeah. Did it come? From- well, there were some growers that were interested in um, in this as a project, but you know, um, nobody in in the fifties um, and early sixties when these two um, this agricultural engineer and plant breeder were working together, nobody actually really thought that they were going to be able to do it. So it's not like it was like some big, well-funded project. They had received some feedback from um, some some growers in the in the state that said, "Hey, it would be great if we could." Um, develop a mechanized solution for harvesting tomatoes, especially because the Bracero program that was providing a lot of farm worker labor in tomatoes at that time was seeming to be at its end. So growers were sort of faced with what they saw as an upcoming labor shortage or at least a cheap labor shortage. So, yeah, there was, there was a suggestion, hey, maybe UC Davis, maybe you guys could figure something out here. Um, but there, it wasn't actually a very well-funded or... Um, very confident, inspiring project. They, these two scientists worked together on failed prototype after failed prototype for more than 10 years. Um, so when they came out with it, right at the, at the serendipitous moment in um, the early 60s, 1962, when the Bracero program was on its last legs, it was sort of this lucky timing for them um, that, you know, they, they did make this achievement. They, they, they revolutionized in some ways plant breeding for a machine, and then they released the machine at this moment when the economics of tomatoes um, were a little bit at, at a crisis point where, they, where growers were losing um, labor for hand-picking. And so, so those two things together paradigm, one, really... One, one a good score, just as the guest worker program mm-hmm. um, yeah. was... was, was in, wasn't it being challenged because uh, post-war there was mm-hmm. a concern that there would be job competition for... Um, mm-hmm. Returning yeah. groups, or what? Can you that segues yeah. us and nicely into your next story? So maybe you can does. talk a little bit about the Bracero program. Sure. Yeah. So the Bracero program um, and the, and the breakdown of the Bracero program is the subject of our second podcast, and those two stories are very tied together, like you like you suggest. Um, and yes, after the war, so so before World or you know as the, Sorry, at the beginning of the Bracero program during World War II, um, Braceros, who were guest workers from Mexico who were legally brought to the U.S. to help out uh, on farms, were looked at as part of the um, greatest generation. They were war heroes. They were coming in to save the crops as American men enlisted and were overseas. Um, and at the beginning of the program, um, they were paid fairly well in terms of um, you know, wages that they could earn in back home in Mexico, the wages were much higher here. Um, And they were given housing and they were given food. Everybody always complained about the Bracero camp food, but they were were 
fairly well cared for as far as guest worker programs go. They had a lot of protections, and it, there was a pretty strongly negotiated contract on the part of the Mexican government. They had a lot of sway and a lot of power in this relationship because the U.S. desperately needed labor. And so the situation for Braceros entering the country in the 40s when the, when the programs first started were actually relatively good. Um, as the decades went on, and um, yes, men came home from the war, there was less of a labor shortage, the conditions really drastically deteriorated. So, um, you know, by the, by the 50s, um, Mexican workers crossing the border are faced with really horrific border inspections, and they're sprayed with DDT, and the um, and the they're you know cheated out of wages when they get here, and there's just sort of this whole running catalog of abuses that start to ramp up as the program ages, and as um, there is you know more competition for those for those jobs, the, the bottom sort of falls out of the the guest worker program. Um, and eventually, you know, there, there are various ca- folks who are cataloging these abuses. One of them is this guy, Ernesto Galarza, who's a social science researcher, and he's um, really communicating with a lot of Roceros and re- writing to legislators and sort of cataloging these abuses. Um, and a couple of young um, organizers, activists, whose names everybody knows, Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta, really kind of cut their organizing teeth in helping to defeat the Bracero program, um, which folks are, 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 you know, claiming is very abusive and, and it had, and it is by the 1960s when they, when they come along and start organizing. Um, and so and far wasn't, part of their, wasn't part of their point also mm-hmm. that the Braceros were not able to organize and that there was this kind of typical tactic of divide and conquer that mm-hmm. that we that we perceive in so many labor struggles, so many clo- yeah. colonial colonial um, labor configurations, where you have different classes yeah. of overseers and petty yeah. landlords and and um, yeah. informal workers and part time peasants and and full time mm-hmm. farm workers and and you just have this fracturing of the labor mm-hmm. classes. It's true. It's true. Yeah, that that is the case. And in the early organizing stages of the UFW, you know, both both Dolores Huerta and Cesar Chavez are Mexican-Americans. They're first-generation Mexican-Americans. And they um, are really wanting to organize settled, legal Mexican-American families who are, at this time, farm workers in in California. Um, Many of them are. And um, so their strategy, actually, in, in the early days, and this is part of what is revealed in that second story and something, a hard reality, but something that we um, need to, to sit with and think about, their strategy really is ending an ab- abusive program, yes, in the Bracero, in the Bracero program, but um, the other sort of side of that strategy was they, they really wanted to close close the border as tightly as they could, and there actually was a division in terms of organizing um, settled legal families who were welcomed into the, the UFW in the, in the early days, the United Farm Workers Union, as it was beginning, versus undocumented Mexican immigrant workers. And, um, you know, some folks, like this Don Villarejo who founded our organization, you know, he thought that was a brilliant move. He witnessed that in, as, as a 
um, a way for Cesar Chavez and others to get their arms around a, a group of people who could be organized and who would be consistently around in places and with sort of a community organizing philosophy. Um, it made sense to work with folks that were legal residents and folks who could who were settled in communities. But that did mean that as the Bracero program ended and there was no further legal path for Mexican immigrants, many of those workers became undocumented. And they continued to come across the border because there was a labor need um, and because wages in Mexico were so bad. that There's a colonial differential right there for you, right? Why, why can't people make a living in their rural communities in Mexico? It has everything to do with their neighbor to the north in some ways, the U.S. So the, the, a flood of people continues to come across the border um, and in the early days, UFW organizing did not include um, immigrant workers or undocumented workers. Um, so in this, which from a very kind of basic sense, a, it's almost that? like a strategy to control the supply of labor, because if you control mm-hmm. the supply of labor, then labor can be paid more exactly. fairly, whereas if it's a permeable, exactly. endless yeah. supply of bodies willing to do this yeah. brutal work, then you just yes. pay less and less. And this is, of course, the situation Agreed. that we, ha- we have to this day. Yes, so, yes. All of these stories have major resonance and relevance now, I think. Yeah, yeah. Gosh. If you have continual supply of immigrants, the wages are continually undercut. It's a, it's a, real, it's a real dilemma. But um, Mario Cifuente is a history professor who's written on this that I interviewed, um, had a good line in the Bracero story that said, you know, Braceros themselves actually did, in the, end, in the end of the program, fight against the abuses of the program, including by um, participating in strikes. But then when the program is, is ended, it's a little bit, for those brasseros that were fighting, it, they feel like it's a little bit of a bait and switch because the program is ended and the bottom falls out on their legal status and they're sort of like, you know, when they're fighting, they're fighting to enforce the rules of the program. They're fighting for a better contract, for a better deal that would harken back to sort of the beginning of the program. They weren't fighting to end it. And so he sort of says, yeah, Braceros aren't going to say, sure, end this program and I'll just come over undocumented. There, there may have been, Mario kind of points to the fact that there, there may have been another way to, to go there that would have um, sort of honored the dignity of the labor needed to do farm work, regardless of your immigration status, and, and use that as, as, you know, sort of reframing, which is a conversation I think the food movement is having now, reframing the value of farm work and placing some, recognizing the dignity of it and placing, a, you know, placing value on that work, regardless of who's doing it, would, would may have lifted the the um, you know the cost we're willing to spend on that labor overall for everybody regardless of immigration status. Um, regardless, yeah, and I think um, there's two points I want to bring to this. One, as a young farmers advocate who often cites this you know old age of farmers, that age mm-hmm. of farmers is the age of farm owners and mm-hmm. not of farm mm-hmm. workers, and the kind yeah. of poverty we point to in our central crisis that, you know, our work seeks to alleviate is a recruitment of a new owning class of farmers, whereas there's Mm -hmm. a different move that could have been made. 
and that I think yes. can still be made in the conversations that we're having about student loan debt and the conversations we're having about affordable housing and the conversations we're having about affordable health care, that the issues which plague new farm owners, um, young yeah. people, often with some educational other kind of privilege or audacity, um, are the same challenges faced by those mm-hmm. trying to make a living in a rural economy who are lower down on the wage chain. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's one kind of, I think, resonant point that will be very interesting for our listeners to track. Another point is how many of our young farmer businesses are now maturing um, as they come into six, seven, eight, nine years of business, which you know, still a beginning farmer, mm-hmm. finding mm-hmm. that you know, once again, having a legal, um, reliable labor supply um, in regions outside of California and everywhere is just very challenging. And once again, mm-hmm. we have a guest worker program, and more and more um, farmers find that to fill their crew, they are recruiting off of that. Um, yeah, using that the H2A worker visa. program. Yep. So I just mm-hmm. wanted to star yeah. and highlight a really awesome documentary called The H2 Worker, which is another <laughs> wonderful um, historical, um, I think it's made in the cool. 70s program mm-hmm. um, that you can watch for free on the Internet. Um, and then I want to turn it back to you, which is this shared dilemma of um, access to land and a fair, a fair deal. And maybe yes. you can sew those things together <laughs> in your response. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, great. Yeah, they, um, and I would just echo that quickly that the H-2A um, visa, one of the people featured in our story, Ignacio Ornelas, makes the point that we are back with a new Bracero program. It's call, We're not calling it that, but it's the H-2A program, and it's got as many problems, if not more, <laughs> as the, the Bracero pro- program, um, and we need to just be really direct and honest about that and then look at it for what it is and, and try and try and make it better. Um, Do you have any sense, so yes. maybe you don't have it right now, fresh off your yes. brain with a new baby, but um, <laughs> do you have a sense of the percentage of farm labor that is under guest work, under legal mm-hmm. status and illegal status at this time in the United States? I, I do not have that number, and those numbers are notoriously difficult to get a hold of. I'm working on a farm worker housing survey right now in our area, and um, even find, even getting a, a, your your mind around how many farm workers we have, it's a sort of a yeah, it's it's hard hard to peer into that black box, um, especially when people don't have legal status. So there's a lot of guesses, but um, those are very difficult numbers to come by. Okay, that's um, good knowledge to know that we don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't know. We don't know. We don't know. Yeah. Um, Let's talk yeah, about land because we know we need land. Quickly, yeah. It sounds like we're we're almost at the end of our time here, right? But um, we can go in another fast. five minutes. Okay. Okay. Great. Yeah. Our third third story in our first series was um, about an amazing organizing effort and group called National Land for People, and um, they were. Um, looking to, um, well, really, they had a vision for redistributing land um, in California's Central Valley and across the Western states. 
Um, and they were doing that. They were they were trying to achieve that project, massive project, by um, trying to get the Bureau of Reclamation, um, which is the department that um, authorizes and oversees and enforces regulations related to um, water development projects, among other things, um, in in the West. So they were trying to get the Bureau of Reclamation to enforce a long-standing rule that had been on the books for a century um, that said if you were receiving federally subsidized water from all of the variety of ditches and dams and irrigation projects that were built with federal money in the West, if you were receiving water from those projects, you could own a property up to but no larger than 160 acres um, if you had land that was if you're watering land that was larger than 160 acres, you could do that for a 10-year period, and then you had to sell off that land at pre-water prices, so essentially dirt cheap. And that 160 acres um, was inserted into the Reclamation Act as you know, with a sort of homesteading vision in mind about how we were going to settle the West. Um, and the well, we should. And I, group should I, I want to interject something mm-hmm. because this yeah. federal mm-hmm. money. So this is also East yeah. Coast money and East Coast kind of yeah. values mm-hmm. and um, mm-hmm. that were a part of a huge, tremendous, like mega, giga, huge movement mm-hmm. of rivers through, yes. you know, world-changing scale of concrete yes. um, dams to rejigger the way that water flowed across this other half of the continent. And exactly. an incredible mm-hmm. uh, nation-building vision that you know yes. obviously had some strings attached, and didn't. And then, of course, we ended up with um, right a lot of crooked. Right, things. that vision but, was never enacted. Those rules were were never enforced. Um, and in the sixties and seventies, a group of activists. Um, happened upon this rule, were pointed to this rule by um, a wonderful economist, Paul Taylor, married to the famous Dorothea Lange, photographer. Um, Paul Taylor sort of, you know, pointed this activist group to to the fact that this rule wasn't being enforced. And this um, a journalist and activist organizer, uh, George Ballas, founded an organization called National Land for People, um, that was designed to raise as much stink, as much public attention, get as much public attention to the fact that this rule wasn't being enforced, particularly in California's Central Valley. And um, he did everything from publishing, you know, newsletters that use really radical language about um, the wave of water crimes happening throughout the valley um, to hosting reality tours where he brought people from urban areas on buses um, to the crime scenes that he would point to and he would sort of show the ways that bigger growers were um, were just flagrantly ignoring this this law, and um, this group raised enough of um, raised the profile of this these crimes to the point um, to a high enough level where there was a national debate over these issues, and they filed a suit that they won again and again and again against the Bureau of Reclamation, claiming you know pointing to the fact that they weren't enforcing the law. Um, and they won their suit all the way up to the Supreme Court, and they actually won in Supreme Court as well. And um, by the um, by the late 70s, it looked like the Bureau of Reclamation was going to have to act 
um, and the, they began host, holding hearings throughout the West and in California about how they were going to begin to enforce this land redistribution, essentially, this carving up of these big tracts of land into 160-acre parcels and the sale of those parcels for dirt-cheap prices, which could have entirely transformed the face of farming. Um, then, for instance, again, here's where the jig is not work it. <laughs> for instance, could have gone to a whole generation of land, of, far, of land, what, what yes. you mean when they call them land workers. You got it. You got it. And the, their motto, you know, they drew their motto from Emilia, Emiliano Zapata. It was a Zapatista motto that said, um, land belongs to those who work it. And their vision was small farmers, farm workers, people working the land could own a piece of the pie here. Um, and they, there was actually a connection to the UFW. George Ballas was a UFW organizer as well. So all these stories are interwoven for sure. Um, but in 1981, the Reagan administration, former California governor, right, Cal Ronald Reagan, it's no coincidence, go, rolls into the White House, and one of the first priorities of his administration is to, quote-unquote, modernize the Reclamation Act, which essentially guts, guts the law. It removes a residency requirement. So in this Reclamation Act, it said 160-acre plots, and the farmer has to live on that land. They can't live in this in L.A. or Beverly Hills or wherever folks at farming the valley were living, um, and they and they um, upped the acreage limitation um, within the Reclamation Act, and that is upped and then upped again, and essentially becomes um, meaningless as a tool for enforcing um, any acreage restrictions. So, unfortunately. That that um, the powers that be sort of <laughs> um, put a lot of pressure in, in, on Washington lawmakers, and the, the law was gutted. But I, I want to say quickly, I know we're, we're ending here. Each of these moments highlights, yes, some struggle, yes, potential, some defeat, some losses. The jig is never up, right? But I find the moments to also be incredibly hopeful. Because take National Land for People as an example. For a group, a sort of ragtag group of activists and organizers to look at the landscape of the Central Valley, which, as you said, Severin, is like the most vastly transformed landscape in the history of the world, really. And it's, and it's you know, monocropped and its own. The, the, the power structure in the valley is very futile. You can feel it. But for them to look at that and say, hey, like something entirely different could be here. And we imagine these being farm worker owned parcels of land and thriving community centers that are based around a small scale agriculture. Um, that takes incredible vision and incredible hope and incredible optimism. And so for me, looking at these these stories, I see I see a whole range of people who are incredibly inspiring, and they really point to these rays of hope because um, we can't we can't change anything unless we can have some imagination about how things could be different. And these are incredibly imaginative moments. Well, um, I I agree that that optimism and that 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 the futurism of those activists mm -hmm. in thinking mm -hmm. and now even when we think about what does the land want, what does the land need in terms of repair, mm -hmm. in terms of diversification, in terms of restoration, in terms of soil mm -hmm. carbon and health. Um, you yeah. know, is it going to be drones that reforest, or is it going to be people who reforest? 
is a right. is a question that is actually much in debate in places that mm-hmm. I am lucky to stand. I want to mm-hmm. point out one other really fun reference for those who are studying along these lines, um, a book written by Frank Norris, which is in the public mm-hmm. domain, and you can download it for free off archive.org or from LibriVox, which does free podcasts of all public domain books, a great podcast addict's hint, and it's called uh-huh. Octopus, and it's all about the land scandals in the Central Valley um, for the wheat growers. So even some of these larger-scale growers were themselves getting snookered by the railroad. So it's yep. a great it's a great story of monopoly and intrigue and, and violence and um, mm-hmm. vigilantism. And anyway, you're going to really like it. And yeah. It goes on forever. So you can drive all the way across the country if you want. Listening That's to Illy and the Cal Ag <laughs> um, and listening to Frank Norris, the octopus. And it's such a great pleasure to have you on the show, Ildi, and I can't wait to hear the next edition yeah. Yeah. What's it called? Really, What's it about? It's called it's called Founding Farmers, Japanese Growers in California. And it's about um, the way the actual transition from the wheat era that you're describing to the era of specialty crop, fruit and vegetable crop production in California. And we don't hear about it ever, but um, Japanese and Japanese American farmers were essential in that process. And at, at one point, they were growing 75, 80, 90% of the fruits and vegetables in the state. Um, so it, this explores that and um, their contributions to building California farming. Gosh, fascinating. Well, I can't wait to learn about it and can't wait to see you all again in person. And I want to remind you that there's um, – really awesome publication put out by this group called the Greenhorns. It's the new Farmer's Almanac and it has more than 100 contributors. And I wrote a really long essay in the front that includes a few chapters about Paul Taylor and his lifelong quest for justice, water justice, land justice. Um, I also wanted to highlight a new book just released by Food First Books, which is called Land Justice, um, with a bunch of really great contributors focusing exactly on this issue. I think it's clear from where I'm sitting that we are going to need a a bunch of motivated people (laughs) to take on the project that still remains to us in um, the struggle that is shared across the world by so many of us. Thank you, Ildi. Thank you, Severin. This was fun. So fun. So fun for everybody, hopefully, and be back again next week with yet more intrigue for young farmers by young farmers. Talk to you then. Bye-bye. for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. 
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. I can fill up an ocean with the tears that I've cried. Lord knows how I tried, but a storm is wrapped around us and cut.